Hello and welcome to The Fincher Takes It All, a brand new limited series podcast which celebrates Samir Flex and the filmography of director David Fincher ahead of the release of his next movie, Mank. I'm your host, Emily Murray, and today I'm joined by film and TV journalist Amon Warman to discuss Fincher's second movie, Seven, a psychological thriller often held as a masterpiece. The movie follows two detectives, a rookie and a veteran, as they hunt a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motives. Me and Amon discuss how it works as a meditation on evil, the way it immerses you in its world, and just how good Morgan Freeman really is. But first, here's a clip. You want to be a champion. Well, let me tell you, people don't want a champion. They want to eat cheeseburgers, play the lotto, and watch television. Hey, how did you get like this? I want to know. It wasn't one thing, I can tell you that. Go on. I just don't think I can continue to live in a place that embraces and nurtures apathy as if it was a virtue. You know different, you know better. I didn't say I was different or better. I'm not. Hell, I sympathize. I, I sympathize completely. Apathy is a solution. Welcome, Amon, to The Fincher Takes It All, the new podcast, the cousin of Knowing Me Knowing You, which, of course, you guested on. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, I suppose for listeners who, for some reason, don't know who you are, do you want to introduce yourself and what do you do? Yes, I'm a film and TV writer. Uh, I've been doing it for nine years or so. I'm also the contributing editor uh, to Empire Magazine. Uh, I've written for Variety, Enemy, and a few other places too. Yes, you are here, there, and everywhere, as they say. <laughs> fingers and pies. <laughs> lots of fingers and lots of different pies. Um, I just, I suppose, want to get your initial thoughts on David Fincher. You know, as a director, are you a fan of his work in general? You know, what are your, I suppose, like just quick thoughts on him? Yeah, I'm a fan of David Fincher. Um, his films. And not, do not necessarily always fill me with joy, but they're very cerebral <laughs> and I appreciate that. I also appreciate how meticulous he is. Obviously, there's many sort of famous stories about how many takes he does, but all yeah. of that, that meticulous uh, sort of planning and filmmaking is more often than not reflected, reflected on screen in a really effective way. And you can't help but appreciate that. Yeah. Now I'm just saying. And as you said, they don't uh, always fill you with joy. And when I asked you, would you like to come on the podcast? Your response was like, can I please do seven? <laughs> so you picked perhaps the bleakest of <laughs> bleak, bleak movies. I don't know what you're talking about. I laughed my way all through this movie. This is great. No, I'm joking. Um, yeah. Yeah, seven. Why seven quickly before? Obviously, you're going to dive into it, but... You, when I said you'd like to come on and you said I'd like to come on can I talk about Seven you know, why did you pick Seven? Um, I just think this is pure I mean all the stuff you were just talking about in terms of Fincher this is the, the purest reflection of that in many senses I think and you know I've been wanting to revisit it for a while it's not a movie which I like to revisit often because it's so bleak part of, partly because it's so bleak um but yeah, it's pure mm. Fincher. I I like the sort of the the crime procedural aspect, the detective aspects of it, which has so long been one of my favorite sort of sub genres of both film and TV. So I've, I I enjoyed that aspect of it too, because I think it's done really well here, as we're as we're going to get into. Um, and yeah, mm. and, and then and then the ending is just again we'll get into it soon, but it's really you know twenty five years on from it now, and it's still holds up and still packs a punch um so yeah i guess because because of, of my desire to really to discuss those things with uh, yeah. a like-minded individual such as yourself <laughs> um because i haven't really sort of got the opportunity to do that um uh yet yeah. in my career so so yeah and it is a really fascinating movie um i think i just thought we'd start off by talking about i suppose how fincher got involved with the film because what i find interesting in a weird way having just like i've just recorded the alien free podcast you like he literally said he never wants to make a movie again after alien free because he had such a horrid experience with the studio like i got a quote from him in an interview that says he would rather die of colon cancer 
then make another movie. So, like, how did, like, Fincher end up doing seven of all the films? And, like, I think it's remarkable that not only, not only did he recover from this, you know, horrific experience, but, and make another movie, but he'd made a damn fine one at that as well. Yeah, yeah, and no, I believe it's because uh, he got a hold of the script, of the original sort of unchanged script, Andrew, Andrew Kevin Walker, who I believe was a newcomer at this stage, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. crafted this amazing screenplay, and Fincher got a hold of the screenplay, which hadn't been, which which had which hadn't had the ending changed, um, and he sort yes, of demanded yeah. that uh, you know that ending not be changed, and that was like the main reason uh, for him sort of wanted to do the film, and you know he didn't necessarily have the um, uh, the nous to sort of you know make that happen by his by himself, but Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt did. And they sort of, you know, signed on to the movie with the condition that the ending be shot as it was scripted. Um, and then eventually the, mm. the studio relented. And I think, you know, that is exactly the type of thing that Fincher needed at this stage. Because you say he was just coming off Alien 3 and that had a lot of studio interference. <laughs> and that <laughs> A was, lot <laughs> of problems. And, yeah. And that, I mean, he and, practically disowned it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, if he hadn't, had that amount of directorial control over his second film, um, you know, I, it, it, would, it would, there would, there would have even been a question about whether he would have made it to a second film if he didn't sort of have mm. that amount of control. Um, and the fact that he did, and this was the result of it, I think paid the way for all the Fincher that we would get uh, later on in his career. Yeah, I was thinking about it earlier, but obviously Alien Freeze his directorial debut, but in many ways, this is the start of his filmography. I think there's a lot of an Alien Free that you could tell it Finches just, you know, edging through there, but because there was just so much studio interference, like this is really his first film where he can get his vision across. And my God, he gets that vision across. Um, it, I just say it's not exactly like, I think I've only seen it maybe three times and it's not because like it is, amazing it's incredible but it's just such a hard horrific watch because of how dark it is i suppose yeah no it is bleak from the get-go even from the opening credits um which are just those credits they're so good they set the tone so well honestly between this movie and i've been re-watching the raimi spider-man movies lately as well Oh, I yeah. think I I we should bring back opening credits, like you know, really good opening credits to set the tone mm. like that, because um, mm. it's something that we we don't really see that often in cinema nowadays. And yeah, I mean, only Bond movie and the odd one, really. That's it. Yeah, yeah, and that's a damn shame because when they're done as well as this, you know, you can tell that you know, when when they when they're done as well as this, you almost wish their opening credits would sort of you know be more in vogue than they are now. Um, and I get that, you know, some, sometimes, you know, it's effective that when they aren't sort of, you know, elongated as 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 as, the, as this one is. Um, but there are times where, you know, it really sets the tone and gets you pumped and all excited or draws you into the film immediately before you even see an actor's face. That's yeah. impressive. Um, yeah. And obviously this particular sort of opening credit set that uh, set uh, was, again, the the forebearer of a lot of the Fincher we see in terms of Nine Inch Nails and, uh, mm. and Trent Reznor and how sort of uh, Fincher would partner with uh, that artist going forward as well. Uh, so I really love those. I think the opening credits, like, it's, I suppose, our first glimpse at John Doe, um, the main villain of the piece. Um, and I just think not only is it, like, visually interesting, but the amount, like I was reading earlier, about the amount of, like, hard work like getting like a guy to like write all those, you know, to, like to really practice how John Doe would write. Like you can really tell that a lot of thought went into the opening credits and it is very striking and immediately you like are intrigued by what this story is. Because that's what I find really interesting about Seven is, as we said earlier, it's incredibly hard watch. It's incredibly bleak, but it's also really compelling and I can't help but be drawn into that world and absorbed into that world. Which yeah. is kind of ironic, considering I don't want to be anywhere near that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, but I really can't stop watching it. <laughs> yeah. Just one quick note I wanted to add is that I, I need to sort of, you know, follow up on this to sort of make sure it's true. But I've heard that people were actually paid to write 
all of John Doe's diaries and Doe paid like $15,000 yes. or something, which is insane to me. Um, I've heard this I've heard this as well, so I think it probably is true. Unless yeah. it's just like a wild rumour. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, you're, you're totally right about being drawn into the world. And I think, you know, it's a testament to the filmmaking and that, that, and that we are. Because you think about how other films with this subject matter would have a flashback here or there or would have the victims killed on screen. Um, this film doesn't need any of that. And so much of the film's effectiveness is because we are imagining what has happened moments before mm. off screen, rather than actually seeing the horrific actions on screen. The only murder which we see take place on screen is when Mills kills John Doe. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and we're still saying this movie is, you know, as violent and as bleak as it is um purely because of the filmmaking purely because of aspects like that purely because of just you know the darkness and the rain is constantly raining there's one scene oh, the rain know, i love the rain <laughs> so effective it really really is and like you know, even yeah. like even like and then there's certain scenes especially like you know when you think about the gluttony murder where you feel like you can mm. smell what's happening on screen um that's just really, really great filmmaking. And then you add, on top of all that, you got the ominous score by Howard Shaw, of all people. Uh, Lord of the Rings himself. Obviously, he, he hadn't course. done that yet. Of um, course. But yeah. But, um, but yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> I, I, I re-watched the, the film for this podcast, and I didn't know that Howard Shaw did this, and I would not have called that at all. Um, but it really, really works to just heighten the grimness of this film hmm. i think you're right when you said about how we don't see much physical violence it's all quite like psychological in a way like how it's all around us like we will probably delve into the ending scene later because it's i just absolutely adore it well i say i adore it yeah it's amazing <laughs> but like yeah. we never actually see what's in the box we are just told what's in the box we don't actually see what's in the box and again it's what you said like we don't actually see much violence it's all in the head which i think works really really well for this film another thing that um i sort of realized on recent watches you know the locations never specified this literally could be any city and nor was a time period you know how like how zodiac's very much set in a set time period like there's a point where, like, we see computers and then the computers aren't there. And then Somerset's, you know, working a typewriter. Like, it feels like this can be at any time, in any place, which only makes it more chilling, I think, because it kind of makes it a bit more relatable rather than having, like, a set location and time period. Absolutely. It adds to the nihilism of the film. Um, mm. Because this isn't just, like, you know, Chicago or whatever. This only happens in Chicago. This is, like, humanity as a whole talking about thing talk about things like apathy um and and you know stuff like that um and you you, you I mean you said it, the relatability especially you know watching this film with the lens we now have in 2020 um yeah kind of feels oddly comforting in a really messed up way because the state of the world um and the yeah. fact that the place isn't specified only as to that you're completely right yeah, I think um, I watched it with director's commentary and he says the reason he made that decision is because, you know, sin isn't modern. Sin is all around us at all times, which, well, he's a pinch <laughs> you know, he's got some depressing takes on life, which um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose that's what makes his movies interesting. He's, he's, he's not a guy I want to sort of hang around for too long, I've got to say. <laughs> maybe like a, maybe maybe an interview here or there later on but in terms of like you know let's let's go out for a coffee nah i'm good man i'm good <laughs> go for a pint <laughs> go for a pint <laughs> can you imagine the pub like the small talk over a pint in the pub oh, oh, not that gosh. we can go for a pint in the pub um as you said like so much of it's about the human condition and i don't think this film has much nice things to say <laughs> about humanity because it is so bleak, it doesn't have a happy ending at all. Um, but yeah, I think I think all of that is encapsulated in the ending. Um, you just think about, <laughs> again, in other films, that wouldn't have, you know, happened because uh, the, the ending would have been sort of the more gratifying one that we, being the more hopeful audience, would have wanted to see. But it's the ending that the film, that the story deserves 
um, that makes the most that, that makes the most sense for the story, and the bleakness, the nihilism, all of that is inherent in those final few minutes, um, mm. which is why it's still so powerful and effective today. And although that moment and this sort of you know type of filmmaking has been imitated many times <laughs> since you know it's released, there's been nothing which has really come close to especially when you're watching it for the first time, the power uh, of this ending, because it's an ending that leaves you just stumbling out of the cinema um, yeah. on, on your first watch. Um, like, did, did they really go there? Did they really do that? But they had to. Like, I can't see... I understand the studio wanted a more traditional action-packed, guns blazing, fight ending. But, like, they, they this was, the, I suppose, like, the fittingly grim end to a twisted tale. Like, the last piece of this cruel puzzle... Like, I can't see this film with any other ending. Yeah. Yep. And it's very, very clever because, you know, the, and the film sort of is sort of giving you clues and this clued up to the fact that when John Doe turns himself in, there are still two of his sins which haven't been accounted for. So you know that something, something's up, but there's no way I don't think anybody on first watch could have predicted that is where the movie was heading. It's very, very good. Very, very clever. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think all you need, like, obviously, Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Kevin Spacey, they're all great in this movie. But, like, that, you know, the way you got Mills is clear, agony, like, John Doe is just so cold, and Morgan Freeman is just, you know, he's just in despair at this moment. Like, all you had to do is look in the eyes to really know what's going on in this scene. And I feel about all the tension that's been built up in the past two hours just, like, immediately unravels. And, yeah, I always remember that line, her pretty head. That's what's in the box. It's horrible. Absolutely horrible. The thing which really stuck out to me, I mean, and, and I think it has stuck out to me on recent, on, on, other, on other rewatches as well, but knowing what's going to happen, that car ride and some of the things Mills is mm. saying, it's just like, you're almost like shaking your head and laughing to yourself, just like, ah, oh, dude, dude, just, just stop talking. Just stop talking. Yeah. Ugh. Some of the things, like, you know, <laughs> he's like saying, you're a hack, you're a has-been, nobody's going to remember your name. And again, knowing what's happened, knowing, knowing what's about to happen, it, it hits differently is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. What do you um, what do you think about the villain of uh, John Doe? I mean, he's, he's one of the best villains I think we've ever seen on screen. I'm just going to get this out of the way. Um, Kevin Spacey can be both an asshole and very good in this movie. I think both things can be true. And I think both things are yeah. true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, his performance is great. The fact that we only are properly introduced to him with about 30 minutes left to go and he still manages to be, again, one of the best villains we've seen on screen, I think is just a testament to both the screenwriting and the acting. Um, that's, that's incredible. Um, so, so yeah, um, that's great. I, I think it's really interesting how, uh, there are parallels between John Doe and Somerset. Um, yes, because they both view the world in similar ways. They just go about sort of acting on those beliefs in obviously far different ways. And I think that those parallels are very, very interesting to delve into as well. Mm. The thing that strikes me about John Doe, and I agree with you about Kevin Spacey, like, yes, he's a horrific person, but I have to acknowledge that his performance in this movie is great. And I wonder why, you know, he's obviously a criminal himself, I suppose. But the thing that strikes me about the character is, you know, like, it's I suppose it's the pride he takes in his work. And it's very precise and very uncompromising. And I think that's what makes him so evil. Is just the amount of thought, I suppose, and planning and execution that's gone into this. Like, like it seems that like he's got everything down to a T and it's a preciseness. And when we go to his place, and as you said, he's got all those journals there. Um, like, that's like, like oh God, like this, they really are up against something now. That's when it properly hits for me anyways. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's almost always one step ahead of mm. the detectives. And again, in other movies, that would eventually be turned on its head. But the fact that he yeah. ultimately wins is just a testament to sort of the bleakness and the darkness of this movie. 
um, and it really it really works. I do have a question for you about John Doe. Okay. Um, just from reading about this online, I feel like people say that the film shows some sort of level of respect for him, and in the way he, I suppose he like his murders are like art to him. Like I never got that, so th- I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that sort of view. His murders are like art. That's interesting. Yeah, as in like it shows some sort of respect for that kind of like art in a way. I guess to a point I can understand that argument. I mean, I know that there's there's been some sort of, you know, written about the that car ride and how he's justifying his murders. And, you know, obviously there's no, like, there's no sane person who would take it to the level that John Doe does in this film. But to a point... You know, it's it's understandable why he chose the victims that he did, um, and why he sort of, why he does what he does. Obviously, you don't have to agree with it. If you're the same person, you shouldn't agree with it. Um, yeah. But um, but yeah, I found that interesting. Um, in terms of the art level, that's, I mean, I guess in a very sadistic way. Again, you can justify that, but I, I wasn't really thinking. Oh, you know, that looks you know, artful yeah. when... I think they're trying to say it's more the film sort of shows respect for it. Well, I never like, I never got that, which is why I think I found it to be quite an, like an interesting interpretation. Mm. Yeah, because I always think it's portrayed as, like, there's nothing... I feel like they say it has respect for it because of the way he, like, he takes pride in it and his, you know, he goes about it in interesting ways. But I'm like, the film, no, I don't think it ever shows any, like, degree of respect at all towards John Doe. It's just... This is a horrific man, and he's even more evil because he literally the amount of thought he puts into it. And as you said, he's always a step ahead and like right to the very bitter end. One thing um, I forgot to say earlier about the ending is how you know, Finch obviously got his way by putting the what's in the box scene, but you know, he wanted it to cut to black after that. But instead, right. we get we said so we get Somerset, the wonderful Morgan Freeman, delivering an Ernest Hemingway quote. You're saying the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part, which I suppose you could say as a degree of hope to the end of the movie. So is it all that bleak? But I would also say after the two hours and the events we witnessed in the two hours, like I do not agree yeah. <laughs> with that, with Morgan Freeman there. I think they kind of, I think the studio wanted to put that in just so the audience aren't left like, you know, right at the end. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I do think that on a small level, Mills has changed um, Somerset um, mm. in an interesting way because he had there's that, there, there's that great, great, great conversation in the bar um, in which um, sort of Morgan Freeman's character is talking about apathy. And I think Mills' response is, yes. um, you, you want to think these things because you're quitting, not you're quitting because you believe these things. And that sort of lingers yeah. in the air like Somerset doesn't have a response, um, and I took I took that to me that you know he's really sort of given that statement a lot of thought, um, mm. and I and, you know just just in terms of you know, pure performance level, I love that line and I love the delivery and Morgan Freeman, I consider this you know I've been t- again I was you know rewatching this film and I got sort of a, a geeky WhatsApp group and I was saying that I was rewatching the film and I put this. Initially, I said it's neck and neck with Shawshank, who my favorite Freeman. But I do think Shawshank is my favorite Freeman. But this is a close second. He is spectacular this is up in this. There. Oh, is, absolutely. And this is, you know, it, even though you know uh, John Doe makes a go of it, um, you know, in the final thirty minutes, for the most part, for the for the old part, really, I think this is Somerset's film. This is Freeman. This is Freeman's film. With, it's, yeah, it's, it's told it's told through his eyes um in, in a lot of ways um and i sort of i like that because he is like the sort of the good moral soul in this depraved world mm. uh to sort of you know take the audience to, you know the, to be to be the audience so get in 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 a way um and i like that. yeah he's there to like almost soften the blows yeah i think which um like if this was told by I mean a lot of films are told by serial killers perspective as well like if this was told by John Doe's perspective it would be a very different movie but I think you're right I think I can't see anyone else playing in Somerset due to his sort of like calm soothing nature like Morgan Freeman's the perfect man for the job as is you know Brad Pitt as Mills and I think the pairing of them 
is just outstanding the way they just play off against each other as you said the bar scene but like any scene like when somerset you know goes around to their apartment for dinner it's just yeah it's just great yeah and that, that partnership is fantastic and you know they the way in which the, the screenplay is just so good like literally the first sort of the first couple of minutes of the film that that strained but ultimately respectful relationship between Mills and Somerset mm. is set up and the first like, within the first 10 minutes there's so much you know about those characters um, and that's just a mark of a fantastic screenplay I, I love I love it and you know in, in, in so many of these films the first half of the movie is really just setting up to get to the good stuff but while this movie is doing that it's also really good stuff that you just want to watch because the dialogue is so good and that relationship, that contentious, admirable, challenging relationship is so fun to watch um, that you yeah. want to sort of, you know, uh, you know, enjoy those scenes before you get to the chase downs, before you get to the reveals, um, which I really, really like. And, and that, that dinner scene, as you mentioned, there are not many moments of levity in this movie, but what moments of levity there are mm. are really, really effective and... Morgan Freeman's laugh in that dinner scene is something which will always just just thinking about that makes me laugh um, and or uh, makes me makes me smile um, and and that and that's great and that's great. I love that. I totally agree. I think one thing Fincher I think does well in his career is he picks good screenplays. If you think about the Zodiac screenplay by James Vanderbilt, like that's an excellent screenplay. I mean, obviously Aaron Sorkin for Social Network, like he like I feel like he has an eye for it. Um, in a way and he's definitely had it with this one and another thing I really like about um, Seven is as you said the partnership between Mills and Somerset is just fantastic I think it might be my favourite like you know older police like older police detective younger police detective partnership because we've had a lot of those in cinema yeah we have (laughs) (laughs) we've had a lot of them but I think this is one of the most effective ones and it's because there's a certain I think Brad Pitt's great but there's a certain like degree of naivety to his character, which you know makes him quite endearing. And I think we need Brad Pitt to be kind of like sweet and naive to really make it hit even harder. You know what happens to him at the very end, and the same and the same with Tracy Gwyneth Paltrow. You know they're just a young, naive couple. Like the naivety comes out when <laughs> I really like that scene when the train comes, you know, over their apartment and it shakes. And then they're like, when they had a tour on the apartment, they were questioning why it took so quick, why it was so quick, because they didn't realise it's because there's a train like every few, every certain minutes. And I think that's like, that's just a really nice scene that tells you a lot about their relationship, a lot about their characters. And you know, it's about, this film is about loss of innocence as well. And that's, as I said, you need Mills and Tracy to be so young, sweet and naive to really make that ending even hit, even hit harder. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, just you know, as you were sort of saying that and talking about Morgan Freeman, I was just thinking mm. about what makes that performance so great. And my mind went to Chadwick Boseman because I've been talking about a lot yeah. about Chadwick Boseman in the wake of his very, very, very sad passing uh, recently. And one of the things which I've been saying is that to make a character like T'Challa as effective as he is, there's a certain it, it like there's so much of who T'Challa is, which was already inherent in Chadwick himself, that of course he could play a noble sort of king of Wakanda because there's so much of that that he just innately radiated. When it comes yeah. to Morgan Freeman, I feel that way, but I feel that way about wisdom. Yeah, I literally was thinking wisdom when you said that. Yeah, yeah. there's just, and it's not just in this role, it's in so many of yeah. his other roles. There's a reason why he plays God. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it, it's felt very keenly in this as well. Um, mm-hmm. Not just because he's the older, world-weary detective, but just in the performance and his voice work and his detail-orientedness, which is, again, is set up before a word of dialogue is even spoken, is even spoken. You see, you see him removing some some dirt from his jacket, I believe. Um, yeah. And yeah. that is just so perfect for that character, so perfect for that actor. Um, and it's a perfect marriage of those two things. And it's insane because 
Morgan Freeman wasn't always in line uh, to play Somerset, which is insane to think about now. But it, yeah. that Denzel yeah. Washington and Al Pacino uh, were like turned this role down before Morgan Freeman uh, said uh, was offered it, which is insane. But it feels like only he could have really sort of yeah did, uh, did what did what this character does. Um, I mean, I like. Denzel and Pacino but I think you're right I think you need Morgan Freeman's sort of natural wisdom and natural calmness for Somerset to really be an effective character and one thing I picked up on when you said about Morgan Freeman and you the dirt under his jacket like I love the visual aesthetics of this movie and how everything is just disgusting and dirty it's literally like it's everything's covered with an inch of grease and as you said, there's like constant rain. It's really dark. It's really grubby. Like even, you know, Mills and Tracy's like kind of nice suburban apartment like isn't really too nice. Like it still feels quite dirty. <clears throat> like I think that really sort of grimness again matches the tone of the film perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's all about placing the viewer in the world and immersing you in the world. Um, and this, you know, it's it's not just about the acting. It's not just about the filmmaking. It's about the costume design. It's about the set design. Um, it's about you know what the or all the digital augmentations that Fincher makes in post. All of that is down to immersing you in the world of the film, and this film does that to a very effective degree. Um, even and, and 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 again, that's that's also reflected in every sort of you know, side character, because every side character has personality in this movie and a lot of the side characters are played by really really notable actors um of course yeah you got uh, john john c mcginley who is an actor who i just love seeing on screen in any capacity but he's on screen for about three minutes of this movie and every second he's on screen is notable um one of my favorite line readings in this, in this entire film is when they go to the um i think it's the it's the sloth um murder uh, yeah, the, yeah, and uh, and he gets into the room where the guy is there. He's like, "Dix, Dix, get in here!" Oh it's, yeah, <laughs> and it's just it's just so pure McGinley. See, I just know him as Perry from Scrubs, but that's yeah. because I've been recently watching Scrubs, and I remember watching this film. Recently, I was like, "Why is why is Perry here?" But of course, it's because he's like such a good actor. But yeah, he's like. Guys, come in here, like, you got to see this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so he's great. Uh, I think Richard Valentry is in this in this film as um as a big-time sort of DA. He's great. You got Richard Skip. You got uh, the, the late, great John John E. Cathy as the um as the uh, coroner. He's in this film. Just little bit parts like that. Everyone, even the person who Mills pays off um, to, uh, you know, find the library records of John Doe. Even yeah, he yeah. has, you know, it, it it could so easily be that these guys are just nondescript, barely have any lines, barely do anything uh, at all, um, personality-wise. But every single side character mm-hmm. also has a little something about them, and that also contributes into immersing you, immersing you in the world <laughs> of the film. Actually, on that point, um, I've got written in my notes. You know how you said about because I totally agree. Um, obviously, as we all know, big Nolan fan here. And the corrupt cop uh, from The Dark Knight is the corrupt FBI guy in this. You know, the one that... I say corrupt, but the one that, you know, Doe pays off. Right. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, what's his name? Oh, my God. Somerset pays to you know, get the library records off, etc. And his character name... His character name is Greasy FBI Man. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is amazing. But in, like, Dark Knight, he's basically Greasy Cop. <laughs> that That is awesome. Do you know how much I'd be babbling to everyone I knew? I I was the greasy cop in the Fincher movie and the Nolan movie. Like no. that would be all I talk about. Yeah. <laughs> that guy is Your made. Is Mark, Mark Boone Jr., who apparently is best known for Sons of Anarchy. Fun fact. Amazing. But uh, yeah, Greasy FBI Man is one of my favorite character names. <laughs> I think ever. <laughs> Love it. Also, we have Crazed Man in Massage Parlor is another character name from Seven. I'm just looking at the character names now because it, tell you what, I'm on it's worth your time. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, Again, yeah. I'd be, you know, I'd be telling all my friends, look, I'm in a new Fincher movie. I'm in a new Nolan movie. I'd be made for life. I'm here there everywhere. <laughs> yeah. 
But I think you're right. It's the reason I think I love Seven so much is because it is so much about immersing you in this world and the cinematography as well. Like we sort of said earlier about the the, you know, the set design, the costume design, but the cinematography like really, really captures the darkness and bleakness of it. Like there's very little light here. I think the only scene really I can think that's in light is obviously the ending because you know, but it's quite a stark it's quite a stark cold light but the you only know, sort of warm light is in you know that dinner scene with Mills Tracy and Somerset because it's probably the most gentle scene in the film there has to be some light for the shade I suppose absolutely absolutely well I mean the, 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 I just I, I, I tweeted about that scene earlier today and, <laughs> and one of the replies was even in that scene, even in the lightness in that screen, in that scene, um, Somerset is tightening the napkin around his fists. There's always darkness to go with the light at every single turn, um, which I didn't pick up on before. Um, yeah, I like that though. And I was, you know, again, you know, into the, you know, getting ready to do this pod, I was watching a couple of videos on it. There's one detail which a YouTuber, a YouTuber pointed out, which really stuck, uh, struck me. Which was that, so post uh, the dinner scene, or, 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 po- yeah, po- post that dinner scene, um, Mills is getting sort of a drink for Somerset, and Somerset is so consumed with the work that he just says, uh, yeah, set, set, set the drink down there. And he doesn't even realize what kind of glass um, Mills has put his wine in, because Mills wanted to get a beer, mm. Somerset says wine. When he eventually sort of you know, looks at the glass he's like what uh and suddenly suddenly communicated with a look but if yeah. you go back and watch that scene it's just subtle details like that that make you know make me want to consider re-watching this on a more uh sort of you know uh regular basis if not for the mm. fact that it was so bleak i might just do it um but uh yeah, I know. <laughs> but yeah you got me in a mood for it yeah exactly um <laughs> but but little details like that it just goes to show how meticulous again Venture is as a filmmaker because yeah. I'm sure that was on his direction that we got a detail like that. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, one thing I did want to ask you was because it's something I never thought about, but you know, I recently watched this with my boyfriend Tom, who's also a film critic, and he really likes the analogy of he says the city is like purgatory, um, and you know, it's all drab and gray, and as they are drawn further into John Doe's, you know, sort of, I suppose, like kind of weird scheme, you know, they're being drawn into hell. and Obviously, there's a lot of, like, religious iconography going on in this film, but that's never something that struck my mind. But now I've heard it, I really like it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. And, uh, yeah, it's very interesting because, again, you talk about, you know, you mentioned earlier that the film's a lot about the loss of innocence and the loss mm-hmm. of hope and, you know, Mills entering into this environment. It's the complete sort of antithesis in many respects of what, of the environment that Somerset has gotten used to. Um, and the fact that we slowly and gradually sort of, you know, see that ever way just goes to that. Uh, purgatory is the perfect sort of uh, word for it because it's not quite hell. It's definitely not heaven. It's somewhere <laughs> yeah. in between. And, uh, and yeah, the, the, the effect, nobody can really avoid it. And yeah, I like that word purgatory. It's very good. Yeah, I thought that's. I was like, oh, that's that's neat. That's going in the pod. <laughs> <laughs> you chosen well, Emily. You chosen well. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just it's, as you said, it's just such an interesting movie to talk about because there is so much going on, and it's not your typical police detective serial killer film. This, I would say, I really like Zodiac, by the way, um, and all of other Finch's many serial killer movies. Um, but this one really sticks out, I think, as something really, really special because I think Fincher phrases it perfectly. He says it's a meditation on evil. It's not a standard police detective and serial killer film, even though that's obviously a major part of it, but it really is a meditation on evil, which is just a phrase that I just love and I think just sums up Seven just perfectly. And obviously it had to come from Fincher himself. It's his baby. Yeah. <laughs> It's take, it took a lot of commitment to make sure it stayed that way. Because, again, you, you're completely right in that this is not a standard detective st- story. And no matter how 
you know, impressive visually and all the scenes and all the acting which we've been lauding over the past uh, however many minutes, if that ending is changed into something more gratifying, we're maybe not talking about this movie today. Um, yeah. The commitment to stick to the guns and to bring that ending to life, um, I think is a testament to everyone involved uh, in this movie. And, you know, that more than everything else, although not necessarily not because of all the other stuff, is why this movie has had its staying power and why it's still something which, you know, we're still celebrating and talking about and analyzing 25 years after the fact. It's also interesting to watch this movie today with the lens that we have given everything that's going on in the world, especially when it comes to cops and media, because um, obviously that's, you know, being really sort of talked about in a big way, given the Black Lives Matter movement and yeah. uh, what we've seen cops do on camera um, <laughs> in some instances uh, over the past sort of however many years, but especially over the past however many months. And mm. even so, just as an audience member, you yourself are justifying the shortcuts which Mills and Somerset are taking because yeah, of the yeah. because of the serial killer John Doe. Um and that's sort of interesting um to just analyze within yourself. At least I found it interesting um when I rewatched the the, the movie uh, this time out. Yeah, simple things like when he takes the shortcut of getting the library records, you're like that's you say in your head that's the right thing to do because it's the only way they can, you know, get John Doe. But actually, that's illegal. Yep. And we shouldn't be justifying that. And I think you're right. In, the film invites us, especially in modern context, to really think about what makes a bad cop, what makes a good cop, what are there such things as good cops? Like, what, you know, what do we think about their actions here? Exactly. Well, I think Somerset says it best at one point, where it's like you, you can't think of the world in, in, in black and white. Um, it's in this. I mean, not just in terms of color palette and such, but this world is very, very, very grey, um, and that makes for a much more interesting movie. Yeah, yeah. Which I think, as I sort of said earlier, like these this police partnership is one of the most fascinating in cinema history, and I think you're right. It's because it's so nuanced. There's so much going on in both characters but also when they're together and the way that they because like you know Mills is like that's wrong we can't do that but then also he he ends up shooting the serial killer like well not only that I mean like, he's like you know breaking down the door to yeah. the apartment making sure but there's it, a cover it story yeah, yeah it, it increases because originally he's quite hesitant but you know his actions only increase which I think is the way he compromises it like I think it's just really interesting yeah now Fincher, he was ahead of the game. He was ahead of the game, and he's ahead of the game. <laughs> nobody, again, you know, this is this type of filmmaking has been imitated, but nobody's really been able to come close to matching it. I think it's it's a really amazing piece of work. Hmm. How do you think um, it compares, I suppose, to the rest of his filmography? Because obviously, he goes on to do stuff like Zodiac, even Gone Girl. Is you know, there's elements of sort of police. He goes, you know, police and serial killers are a major focus for him. Yeah, he definitely has a style and a type that he likes. Um, how do I rank it? Like, this is probably... Oh, this is very, very tough. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> to be fair, I don't know what my favourite Fincher film is. I'm hoping to find out on this podcast. <laughs> I, I think it. it will probably be between... Seven, The Social Network, and Gone Girl for my favourite venture, with Fight Club and probably in fourth. Uh, I need to re-watch Zodiac. It's been a very, very, very long time uh, since I've watched Zodiac, and that might change things somewhat. Um, but, yeah, I'd probably go right now The Social Network 1, 7 to Gone Girl 3. So definitely one of his best for you. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I agree. That, that's and said, like, I love I love Zodiac. Girl Drenched Two, obviously he did as well. And these other police... I need to watch Mindhunter, actually. But these other films focus on police detectives and serial killers. But I think 
Seven just has this real sense of individuality to it. And I know it has, as you said, it's been mimicked in many ways, including in Fincher's own work since its release, but it still does stand out as something special. And I think you're right. It's because of the ending. If it wasn't for that last five minutes, especially if we had the ending the studio wanted, which was just a shootout, basically, like it just wouldn't have the same <laughs> lasting impact. <laughs> I know, I know. Who who are these people at studios? <laughs> Man, if I ever get the money to do my own studio, I you know just just venture. Give me a call, man. If and when that happens, you can do anything you want. No interference from me. You just do you and make me lots of money. That's all I ask. Just make me lots of money. Yeah. Are you? Um, I suppose are you looking forward to seeing Mank? It's been a while since we've had a new Fincher movie. It has a been long a long time. A long time since Gone Girl, which is one of my personal favorites. Yeah, no, New Fincher is always something to be excited about. There's very few filmmakers who have reached that level where it's their name that is putting butts in seats or, in this case, is putting, you know, is making sure Netflix get the clicks. Um, so, you know, and but, but Fincher is one of those very, very few names who has commanded the respect uh, to do that. Um, so, yeah, very, very interested in uh, seeing what he's come up with in, with Mike and hopefully it's something that maybe enjoy is the wrong word for Fincher but <laughs> so hopefully it's, hopefully it's something which is similarly effective uh, to yeah. Seven and the rest of his very fine work it definitely looks different which is why I'm even more intrigued by it I think just the plot the way it looks like even the fact that it's a Netflix movie I just think it all sounds incredibly interesting um, well, I mean, it's, well, the fact that it, the fact that it is Netflix means that he's definitely been given carte blanche to do whatever the hell he wants. Um, so it's only and, good news. <laughs> so it's what you know, he deserves. Yeah. So yeah, we will see because you know a lot. Of, like th- there are times when a little sort of not not a lot, but a little studio managing has come in handy. Um, we're about to see what, you know, Fincher completely pure, unfiltered, you know, unsupervised. We're about to see what that looks like for probably the first time. Um, and mm. it will be interesting to see what that looks like. Because, um, like, you know, you think about the other Netflix films which we've, which we've seen. On the one hand, you've got The Irishman and Martin Scorsese. And that's what, you know, a typical pure, unfiltered Martin Scorsese film looks like. And then you see films like Six Underground, and you see what a typical unfiltered uh, <laughs> Michael Bay looks like. Um, hey, so, thank you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're about to see what a, you know an unfiltered uh, David Fincher looks like, and that's exciting. We shall see. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing another thing about Mank uh, is it's quite a personal movie to him, which is something I don't think we've seen yet. Like his dad wrote the screenplay. You know, he was meant to. A film this like in the, in the late nineties, but you know, obviously, it's taken a while to, for this project to go off the ground. Like, I think that's gonna be interesting to see in w- what a, a personal Fincher movie looks like, if that makes sense. Because I wouldn't say any of his movies so far feel quite personal or intimate in any ways. Oh, intimate? Hell no. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like this. I feel like Mank might be. Um, I don't want any intimacy from Seven. No, thank you. Um, personal? I really, really hope not. Because um, yeah. yeah. You know, if someone told me it's seven, were like, you know, it's a very, very personal movie for me, like, like my personal sort of history and journey, I'd be, you know, again, Fincher is not someone I want to get a coffee with anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Fincher, we love you, but... Yeah, you know, <laughs> let's just stick to the to, to the film-audience relationship. I'm good with that. Yeah. In terms of Last Thoughts and Seven, I think I totally agree with what you were saying earlier. It's a very hard movie to watch, um, and for good reason. And even though I watch it, it is a masterpiece. I don't use that word lightly, but it is. But I feel like people should probably rewatch it more just to pick up in a little de- little details, as you said. Like I now want to rewatch it again. I watched it last week for like the third time because I feel that I each time I will pick up on more things, which is what I like from movies. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I I like that aspect of movies when. It's a movie where I don't have to rewatch it because I don't understand what's going on. <coughs> Tenet, excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. Excuse me. No. Excuse um, you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I love going back to films and rediscovering 
or uh, or discovering uh, new things um, which I didn't notice previously, um, mm. and the fact that I've already managed to do that with uh, seven on this just one watch uh, makes me want to dive back in again. I will leave it a little while though because you know the <laughs> again it's it's not just about it's not just the fact that the film was bleak, but the grimness. It almost feels like I need a shower right now. You know what I mean? It, it yeah, just it really, it's a it really yeah. it just covers you and immerses you in it. Um, and that's, you know, a testament to the filmmaking, but it's also something which means that I need a little bit of distance from it before diving back in again, I think. Yeah. It's like I watched Seven and now I'm like, right, where's my nearest happy-go-lucky <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and chocolate and the shower. Because it's like you need to, like, yeah, a cleaning process after. Yeah. But it's still a great movie. But uh, thank you very much for coming on today to talk about Seven. It's been a lot of fun. We've delved deep into the matter. Um, it didn't get too dark. No, I would never allow that. I'm, I'm too much of a fun, hopeful person. Probably the type of person that David Fincher hates. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. One day, we will get the two of you in a room and see what happens. <laughs> oh, gosh. I just need to talk to him about this this podcast that we do. <laughs> <laughs> Um, where can people see more of your work and follow you on social media uh, yeah so you can see more of my work in every issue of Empire Magazine uh, the issue which is about to come out uh, is going to have uh, my first sort of uh, monthly column uh, it's called Black in Focus it'll be a column on black cinema um, each month talking about a major issue that's happened um, so this issue will be about um the fact that Barry Jenkins is directing a new Lion King movie and why I think that's cause for excitement, not necessarily the negative rhetoric which film Twitter spouted in the wake of the announcement. But yes, mm-hmm. um, need to sort of uh, read, read the issue for that. I also got, I've also got a couple of uh, articles I'm looking forward uh, to people reading uh, with that because I also uh, wrote a few words on one of my favourite movies of all time, Gladiator, uh, for the Empire Masterpiece <sighs> section. Uh, so, Gladiator so, yeah. had to get mentioned in this podcast. You got to mention the last one, so I was, I was waiting for it. <laughs> it is one of my favourite movies of all time. I absolutely love it. So I, uh, I, I relish the opportunity to write a few words on why exactly that is the case. Uh, in terms of social media, you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter, at a woman, uh, and you can find all my work, all the links to my work from there. Lovely. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That was me and Amon Warman discussing Seven. Join me for the next episode where writer Anna Kell joins me to discuss the game. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And follow us on Twitter too, at The Fincher Takes It. I would love to hear your thoughts on Seven and any feedback on the podcast. See you next week. <laughs>